2: We are Europeans and we consider ourselves Europeans. So it's not for the Germans to fight for the Germans, for the French to fight for the French. It's that we discuss and decide what we think is best for Europe. The council that we have at the moment does really not get that.
0: Welcome to EU Confidential, I'm Rime Montaz, political correspondent in France, and that you just heard was Katerina Barley. She's an MEP from Germany and a vice president in the European Parliament. She sat down late last week with our own Andrew Gray, who's on holiday today, but fear not, we still have the rest of the podcast gang in place. Matt Karnichnik joins us from Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hi there. And Annabel Dixon in London. Hello, Annabel. I feel like we haven't been on the podcast together for a long, long time. It's been
2: a long time. It's great to be back. Sort of.
0: Sort of. And a special appearance this week from none other than our chief Brussels correspondent, David Hersenhorn. Hey, welcome, David. Hey there. And David, why don't we start with you? Because you've been covering the NATO ministerial with the foreign ministers from NATO countries meeting in Brussels on the heels, of course, of those Macron comments two weeks ago in which he basically said that NATO uh, was effectively experiencing brain death. So are officials meeting at NATO still fuming about that?
3: Uh, They're meeting at NATO, but they're mostly unconscious in comas, uh... Slipping further and further into oblivion. No, they they did, in fact, meet, and certainly this was on everybody's mind, if not on the official agenda. uh, And the German foreign minister, Heiko Maas, came prepared with what uh, they uh, billed as a master plan to get around this uh, sort of plan to start a conversation talking about NATO's future. Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO secretary general obviously struggling with this situation where he first had uh, U.S. President Donald Trump calling NATO obsolete, bashing him and NATO allies over spending. He finally had convinced Trump that, in fact, NATO was no longer obsolete, only to now see Macron come out and say NATO is experiencing brain death. So Stoltenberg just now, uh, his news conference concluding this foreign affairs ministerial said uh, they really appreciate this input from the German foreign minister. They're going to take a look at it and then decide what to do. Not exactly the most enthusiastic response uh, from the secretary general about getting into this conversation.
0: So let me get this straight. Beyond the wordplay on Heiko Maas's name, what was specific in that plan that he came forward with?
3: Well, it's essentially an effort by Germany, as I read it, to tailor the discussion, to sort of start the discussion that Macron is already forcing, uh, but in a more formal way with the parameters that NATO is in fact not brain dead or anything close, that it's essential to everybody's uh, security. But the Germans are, I believe, and Matt will chime in better here, in a bit of a damage control effort. uh, The sort of level-headed proposal there Belies the fury that many at NATO feel over the way Macron has talked about. This alliance. It's not that they entirely disagree with some of the things he said, but to go out there and especially question Article 5, the collective defense doctrine, to suggest that that somehow isn't working or wouldn't work, uh, that really goes far beyond what any NATO leader wants to hear. I said it's like the uh, cartoon character that runs off the cliff and doesn't fall until they look down. You know, all of a sudden Macron's forced everybody to look down and wonder, you know, what's going to happen if, in fact, there was an invasion, say, of one of the Baltic nations by Russia. There's a lot of worry that Putin is looking for opportunities to test Article 5 anyway. And this comment from Macron almost seems to invite that.
0: So, Matt, since Macron gave that interview to The Economist, there's been a bunch of disparate responses from Germany. What's your read on how Germany is responding?
4: Well, I think part of the problem here for the Germans is that they also don't agree at the moment, on where NATO should go. And you've seen that in the statements uh, from Maas and from Annegret Kahnbauer, the defense minister who is also seen as uh, Merkel's possible successor. So I think that while there's agreement in Germany that they need NATO, it's really more of a lifeline, I think, for, for Germany than for France, in fact, so it's much more careful in his language, uh, you know. And, and so, so even if if Macron was was trying to kind of provoke a spirited debate here, which he seems to have succeeded in doing, that you know the Germans could have looked somewhat askew at that and, and feel that there's too much at stake here to be playing politics around NATO. That said, the Germans also don't really have a vision of of where they think the alliance should go. And so it's, it's a bit of a uh, muddled picture here in Germany at the moment.
0: And obviously, Macron made these comments ahead of the NATO summit that's supposed to take place um, in London. You know, I've spoken to uh, French officials about that and asked, okay, so he provoked this big debate. Is he going to put proposals on the table at the NATO summit in London? And so far, I don't get the impression that he is. But Annabelle... What has been the response in London since, you know, it's the UK that's going to be hosting this summit?
2: So, so I, th- I think the UK has seen this summit as their big PR moment. There's been a big build up to it, kind of election aside, and they want to get things back on a more even keel. They don't really have the, the bandwidth or the time for these big existential discussions. So whatever... Um, the issue of security and Brexit comes up. The UK government has always countered this with Britain's commitment to NATO. And this summit in December is very much meant to be about showcasing that relationship. So I I think the kind of rocking the boat in the run-up to this is not going to be very popular.
3: One interesting thing, following up on, on Annabelle's point, is that around NATO headquarters, the anger and pushback I've heard, you would expect it to come from Poland and the Baltics, countries that really keenly feel the threat of Russia all the time. In fact, what we're hearing is anger from Germany and the UK. And so it's not the usual suspects. Uh, you know, Macron has definitely annoyed some of his traditional friends.
0: So, plus ça change... Germany, the UK, France, you know, trying to figure out their, I guess, ménage à trois is the way I like to think about it. Um, But one... (laughs) One place, I guess, they have been sort of on the same wavelength and and presenting a a united front is obviously Iran. And there's been a lot going on uh, on that front in recent weeks. The government hiked gas prices a few days ago. Protests erupted in dozens of cities across the country. And a brutal violent repression ensued with law enforcement opening fire on protesters and killing over 100 All that is directly tied to President Donald Trump's maximum pressure policy after he pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, which is known as the JCPOA. He reimposed robust economic sanctions on Iran, and those have crippled many of the Iranian government's revenue sources. And two weeks ago, Iran breached the deal for the fourth time in what is actually the most serious way by uh, resuming enrichment activities in the Fordow facilities. But other than some calls for de-escalation, France, Germany, and the UK, the three European guarantors of the deal, don't seem to be taking much action, Matt, are they? Well, no, they
4: seem to be sitting on their hands. And in fact, over the past couple of days, we've had reports by Amnesty International and others of dozens of people having been killed, dozens of protesters there in Iran. And things have gotten so bad uh, for the Iranian regime that they've Taken the extraordinary length of uh, switching off the internet, and you know, in a week where we've had the European Commission come out and wrap Belarus on the fingers and say, you know, uh, on the knuckles rather, and say that they should do more to respect human rights, they've said absolutely nothing about Iran, and so I, I would disagree with you slightly in in, in that. Uh, you know, the, the Germans, the French, and, and, and the U.K., in terms of our Iran policy, might all be on the same page, but that page is blank. And that's really the problem here, is that they have no plan. They've been um, very passive throughout this entire period since the U.S. Uh, has reimposed sanctions and have sat sort of idly by. And now, as, as someone said to me this week, you know, that the escalation has progressed so far that there's really nothing left for the Europeans to do.
0: The view from Paris is, I think, slightly different and perhaps a bit more nuanced in the sense that, you know, Paris has been saying, you know, they've been trying to do this mediation effort that they've set up since since June uh, in the hopes of uh, Yeah, but avoiding- that effort
4: failed. And I think ultimately Macron was sort of humiliated by the Iranians, in fact, at the UN General Assembly, where he tried to broker this meeting. He even set up this secure phone line so that Rouhani could talk to Trump and Rouhani basically wouldn't even open the door for him. So I, I think you know this is this is really part of the problem.
0: That's actually not exactly how it happened because I was with him when he went back to see him. Uh, he he did open the door for him and he he did meet him. Perhaps it's not so much well, humiliation.
4: I meant, like, you know, figuratively open the door in the sense that he wouldn't talk to Trump in the end, which is you know what they were
3: hoping. But I think the larger point, right, is that the EU. And its um, guarantors of the JCPOA have not been able to put this deal back together, right? They've been pretending for some time that it hadn't completely fallen apart. I think, Matt, maybe you should give them just a little bit of credit. I mean, they tried, right? They set up this corporate entity called Instex. I don't give them any credit because I think what's
4: happened here is that they've been shown to be completely inept. Their own companies have ignored these attempts to cobble the thing back together by saying okay we are not going to participate in you know these various schemes that uh, you're hatching here to keep trade with Iran alive they're more concerned about us sec- sanctions than they are about uh, you know keeping their own governments happy which shows that you know, these companies, these big European companies, are for all intents and purposes now regulated out of the United
0: States. I think the issue is more perhaps just the reality that the UK, France, and Germany their economies are not immune to US sanctions because you know that's that's the role of the US in in the international kind of power dynamics it's not that they don't want to do something it's perhaps that they don't have the power to well, do something. well i think
4: it, i think it's more about their i think it's more about their own credibility
3: but right? reem aren't we also seeing emmanuel macron get a real lesson in education in foreign big stakes foreign policy, here, where he realizes just how small a window you always have for this sort of thing. He sort of had one chance, that one moment, he failed at that. Now we've got Iran upside down with protests on the street. You've got the United States making a decision on uh, recognizing uh, Israeli settlements, all things that take the conditions of possibly reaching any sort of a deal to zero or below zero. And it's quite interesting to see there, there isn't, I don't sense, Uh, sometimes the acknowledgement on the part of the lisee that in fact Macron is reaching at the sun and uh, falling short you know more times than he's he's getting close.
0: Oh I think you know their approach when we say that to them is at least we're trying who else is trying in a multilateral diplomatic way but that's uh, all we have time for this week. Thanks very much to the podcast gang as I like to call us. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. And now let's hear from Katarina Barley. The German MEP sat down late last week with our own Andrew Gray to discuss her career move to Brussels, having most recently served as Justice Minister in Angela Merkel's Cabinet, among other high-profile positions in the German government, and within her own party, the Social Democrats. The two also discussed the new commission and an issue she is passionate about as a lawyer and former Justice Minister, and that's the rule of law.
5: Let me start with the... Very obvious question. Why did you swap being a, a German cabinet minister for being an MEP in, in Brussels?
2: Well, there were was, was several reasons, actually three of them. One is that I am biographically European from head to toe. My father being British, my mother German. I studied in Paris for a year, met someone who was half Spanish and half Dutch and married him and got two beautiful kids and so on and so on. And so Europe is really my passion. And I always wanted to do European policy when I entered the German Bundestag. It then turned out differently. Um, The second reason being that Europe is in in a very difficult condition, I would say. And that I think now is the time to be... Here. And the third point, um, why now, was that my political party, the Social Democrats in Germany, are having some problems and were having some problems. And um, so many people asked me to run because I am European from head to toe. So then in the end, it was also a decision uh, to support my party.
5: What, what are the main differences you notice between uh, politics doing politics in Berlin and in Germany and how things work here at the European Parliament and in Brussels generally among the EU institutions?
2: Well, it's quite different, actually. First of all, you don't have this parliament, uh, government vis-a-vis, and therefore you don't have political parties that support the government and the, a clear opposition which makes it easier to collaborate between the political groups and it makes you freer as a member of parliament. You're not bound to any side being government or opposition side and I think that's a very good aspect of it. I love all the different languages and nationalities and mentalities. I think that's gorgeous. But of course... Switching from almost 800 assistants to five is, is also a step.
5: <laughs> How have you adjusted?
2: Uh, very well. Um, my whole family joined me actually in Brussels. So for the first time for five years, I have something like a private life, which uh, is good. And uh, that uh, compensates for the loss of assistance. <laughs> <laughs> um,
5: do you have, have you set yourself some goals? Or are there things that you particularly want to achieve during your term here?
2: Well, professionally and politically, I have been uh, focused all my life on the rule of law, on democracy, on uh, how parliaments work. I've even wr- written my thesis about that, my PhD. So... So this is really what I'm passionate about and that is why Europe is the place to be because at the moment we decide how we define the rule of law, what mechanisms we choose to to control um, the application of the rule of law and I think this is absolutely decisive for the future of Europe.
5: If we stay with that subject, obviously there are two uh, EU member states that are currently in the midst of Article 7 proceedings, which is pretty much the EU institutions saying these countries are not upholding the rule of law or at least putting it at risk. What do you think about the idea of a kind of annual rule of law audit for every EU member?
2: I think that is very important. Because what we see at the moment is that Poland and Hungary tell the victim story. That is what extreme right movements all over the place do. Also in Germany, um, that um, if they are being criticised, it's not because they do something wrong. Of course not. It's because they are the only good ones and everybody else must be against them. And that's so easy at the moment. I keep telling my Polish colleagues when they argue with me about that, well, look, Germany has been convicted by the, by the European Court of Justice for violation of rule of law just recently because the court said that our prosecutors are not independent enough. And it is okay to be convicted. The point is how, to, how do you deal with actually the separation of powers? Do you believe as a minister, as government, that a control by an independent justice is good Do you support the idea and do you support their work? Or do you change the rules to make it harder for anyone, especially the judicial bodies, but also maybe the press, to control you? And that is the point that it's all about. So we need a new mechanism for an annual report on every country. I think that is a very good idea. But we have to make sure that we focus on the right points you know we all are, we already have a justice scoreboard and there we see it's all about statistics mm. and that's not the point at all it doesn't matter how long a trial well it does matter but it's not decisive if if you have long trials or short trials if you if they cost a lot or not the idea is just to look behind that and to see do you have rules that secure the independence of justice as as an example
5: if you look more broadly at uh, your party and your group's priorities for this Parliament, how would you um, set them out? You know, for the S and D group, what what is the group looking to make its priorities in the in the years to come?
2: Well, traditionally, we uh, we are very much interested in the conditions in which people live and work. So, the social and uh, labour politics are very important to us. Um, And the other point is that we are very serious about the environmental issues and it's good that Franz Timmermann, someone who has proved to be a very strong commissioner, is now responsible for this field.
5: Do you feel he's strong enough? And do you feel generally that perhaps the, the centre-left got a bit of a raw deal here as things have changed with the commission? Suddenly there was an extra executive vice president from the EPP. Originally you were going to have a Romanian uh, social democrat commissioner. Do you feel you've kind of lost out a bit here? Does Timmermans have enough power to push through what he wants to do?
2: Well, you have to admit that originally the D was extremely well off. We had 10 commissioners, which was... Overproportionate for our strength. And now, because the government changed in Romania, which was not by the influence of any European institution, um, it's only nine, but still, I think we are a very strong group and we have very, very good commissioners. I do admit that I would have liked Franz Timmermans to continue being responsible for the rule of law, because not only did he do a very tough job there, it's also a bit symbolic, and that's obviously the um, countries like Poland and Hungary, but I think, if I'm well informed, it was also Italy, so it's not only Eastern, Eastern Europe. They didn't want it. anyone who was as tough on that as, as von once was. And I'm not happy... If, under that aspect. Now it's Vera Jourova. I've known her well um, as a minister and I think she she will also do a good job.
5: But you think that moving Timmermans, in a sense, allowed those others to claim a kind of victory, that, that they didn't have the guy they didn't like in charge anymore?
2: Well, the victory point was that he didn't become uh, the commission president and that was their victory. And I, I, still, I still feel bad about that, I must admit. Um, Now the dossier, I mean, he has the dossier with the most important topic at the moment. And he is fine with it, and that is important.
5: If we stay with that, um, what happened a few months ago, the European Council, where it looked at one moment as if Franz Timmermans might become the commission president, suddenly Ursula von der Leyen emerged. I think a lot of people found it um, quite hard to understand why, particularly when it came to the votes, Angela Merkel was not able to vote for Ursula von der Leyen because of opposition from, from your party. And I just wonder how you felt as, as a German, as a feminist, to be voting or preventing your government from voting in favour of somebody who was who's going to be the first woman in the commission and the first German to head the commission for decades. And you also had the chance to vote in the European Parliament and I believe voted against her. How difficult a decision was that?
2: Well, it was difficult because I know her well. We were colleagues um, and we have a good relationship. I like her and I I think she's a good politician and I think she will do a a good job. But saying that, I mean, we were so clear during the whole of the campaign saying that we are only going to elect um, someone who ran for the job. And it was not only us. I mean, not many people know that the parliament actually took a formal decision in which it stated, dear council, don't you dare show up with someone as a candidate who has not run for it. We won't elect him or her. And, you know, I'm I'm new in this parliament, but I have followed the whole history and the whole development of the European Parliament and the European institution closely. And looking at where the Parliament came from, with no right whatsoever, with the members of Parliament not even being uh, elected by the people, to where we are now, it has always been a progress. Not once have have we made a step back. And this was the very first time that the Parliament was... I have to say it run over by the council, and I told it Ursula von the line personally. Also, obviously, it has nothing to do with you, but this is something so important for the for the equilibre of the three institutions. And now everybody says, "Well, but she's a woman, but she's German." When I'm here, yes, I'm German, and of course, I I see things through my German eyes, although I also have a British eye, but, yes, my German eyes. But we are not the council. And in this whole commission election procedure, also the size of the French dossier, for example, you see that the council tries to impose council logic on the parliament. But we have a different logic. We are Europeans, and we consider ourselves Europeans. So it's not for the Germans to fight for the Germans and for the French to fight for the French. It's that we discuss and decide what we think is best for Europe. And the council that we have at the moment does really not get that, still doesn't get it. And that is what what really bothers me. I mean, it's not because the Germans now get the president, the French then have to get a, a huge dossier... That is council logic it's not how the Parliament works and and if we allow that to run us over, these are really decisions that will decide on how council Commission and Parliament work together and that is I know it is very hard to understand for people who are not familiar with the institutions and how we work but it's it's really important for us, I think, as an institution to really make a point there. Mm.
5: Um, If we stick with your British eye and talk a little bit about Brexit, it's obviously something that's very important to you, given your family uh, background. How has it affected you personally?
2: Well, my aunt and uncle have moved from England to Scotland, I think something like 10 years ago. They are old and they are worried now that in their 80s they might become foreigners in Scotland, if Scotland has another independence referendum. Apart from that, I mean, well, thank God we're all Remainers in my family but I personally are not i'm not very much affected, but a lot of people around me are
5: but it did did it give you a kind of did it affect you personally oh, of just in terms of how you thought about your identity and that kind of thing of
2: course it did i mean i I remember the day and I was completely devastated and actually I still am because I really love this country it's such a i mean the country is is special and and it has this these these traditions it's it's these democratic traditions that sometimes seem a bit weird for us but they they have been working efficiently and 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 successfully for so long and they they contrib- contribute a lot to europe um, they are liberal in the best sense it's the freedom of mind of, of expression of course it's and their humor. I won't talk about the, the food, but um, <laughs> it's more.
5: You can't have everything.
2: No, you can't have everything but I mean we'll really really miss miss them. Mm. And on the other hand, to see what has become of the country, um, how much is it, it is torn apart that really really hurts me.
5: Caterina Barley, we're out of time. Thanks very much for taking the time on a very busy day.
0: Thank you. That was Katerina Barley speaking with Politico's EU editor, Andrew Gray. And now our reporter Paola Tama takes us on a deep dive into the Extinction Rebellion movement. That's the movement behind the climate protests that have been rocking cities around the world, including London, with their disruptive approach to the climate debate. The Extinction Rebellion
6: movement has grabbed headlines for organising protests around the world.
4: I think up until a few months ago, I'd never heard of Extinction Rebellion. Have
6: you got evidence that two thirds of people support
5: this action by Extinction Rebellion? These protests are causing so much disruption and financial hardship. I've got a real problem with that.
6: As of October, Extinction Rebellion claims to have over 400 groups in 72 countries. They've blocked streets, stopped trains, chained themselves to the ground.
4: We saw two protesters on the roof of the train uh, holding up a banner which basically said, business as usual equals death. Almost immediately, people had gathered around and they were absolutely angry. It got to the stage where uh, a lot of the commuters had just had enough. Uh, They jumped up onto the train and dragged down one of the protesters and, and, and proceeded to attack him.
6: They want to attract attention to the climate and ecological emergency. But more importantly, they want authorities to react. The whole philosophy of Extinction Rebellion is to disrupt. That's what we set out to do. So what makes this movement different from the ones we had before? I'm Paula Tamma, climate and environment reporter at Politico Europe and I ventured to Brussels Royal Square to find out. We called the action here in the heart of Brussels. This is Gertian Van Aken, one of the organizers of Extinction Rebellion in Brussels. He helped organize a so-called royal uprising on October 12th. They plan to occupy an area in front of the monumental royal palace where no demonstrations are allowed. And we uh, wanted to organize it here because it's a symbolic place for democracy and people are going out of their comfort zone by taking part in this action. So we also call on our king to step out of his comfort zone to call for a climate and ecological emergency. This is the first of Extinction Rebellion's three demands, for the government to acknowledge that there is a climate emergency. Another is to slash greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2025. They also want the government to follow the lead of citizens by creating citizens' assemblies made of ordinary people who would steer government policy on climate. Critics say their demands are not realistic. Even the most radical NGOs, like Greenpeace, are calling for that goal to be achieved by 2040. To draw attention to their radical demands, they're confronting authorities through acts of civil disobedience. We're doing an action of civil disobedience, so this means that we are on purpose, we're breaking the law, but also in a very careful way. Uh, And this means that there are risks of fines, but also risks of uh, arrestation. Later that day, about 300 people were indeed arrested in Brussels for refusing to free the square they had occupied.
4: We are peaceful, what are you? We are peaceful, what are you?
6: But the self-described rebels believe that acts of civil disobedience are necessary to move things forward. At the protest in Brussels, I caught up with Silvia Pastorelli, who works for an NGO.
2: In the past, like several times it has been demonstrated that uh, things are uh, starting to change and move only when all parts of society engage in civil disobedience and peaceful civil disobedience is an extremely powerful tactic.
1: The Extinction Rebellion plus the school climate strikers actually have done us all a public service over the last year.
6: This is Ellie Chance, a British member of the European Parliament with the Green Party.
1: By... Bringing the climate crisis to public attention, bringing up the political agenda and engaging a much wider section of the public in discussion about this. You know, you've seen the very wide variety of people who through Extinction Rebellion have been prepared to put their bodies on the line and even risk arrest in order to say to governments, we've got to take this more seriously and take greater public action.
6: In October, she was arrested at an Extinction Rebellion protest in Trafalgar Square in London the London Metropolitan Police had put a blanket ban on Extinction Rebellion protests in the capital. But this was challenged and on November 6th, the High Court overturned the ban. Uh, we're delighted with today's result. It indicates our belief that the police's bank- blanket ban uh, was an unprecedented and now unlawful infringement on our right to protest. It's a victory for those who want to draw the government's attention to what scientists have been telling us for decades, which is that the planet is warming, that we're in the midst of the sixth mass extinction, that we are responsible and that we have a very short amount of time to do something about it. Their approach seems to be working. In November, the UK Parliament sent out 30,000 invites to join the UK Climate Assembly. 110 ordinary citizens will be chosen to discuss how the country should cut emissions to net zero by 2050, a goal the government adopted this summer. Extinction Rebellion calls this a great first step, but it's not exactly thrilled. They are upset that the proposed climate assembly will only be advisory. They want it to have real decision-making power. They also say that the 2050 target is too late. They think the timeline should be 2025. But critics say these demands are disproportionate and undemocratic, and that some of their tactics risk alienating ordinary people. Including among its supporters,
1: This is Ellie Chance. I personally don't support civil disobedience to block the tube because I see that public transport is part of the solution to the climate crisis, not part of the problem. And I would prefer to see protest targeted at the places that are really the causes of the problem. So for example, last week, there was an action targeting uh, London City Airport, which is basically a location from which business people take very frequent flights to attend meetings that they could probably largely do online. So to me, that's a more legitimate form of protest or one that I feel more comfortable supporting. And here is Helen Jackson, a
6: freelance environmental economist and researcher.
1: I'm worried that if these kind of disruption is going to go on indefinitely, then we're just kind of creating a, a self-reinforcing cultural narrative where it's a kind of ordinary people who've got to earn a living versus versus the activists.
6: But activists argue that it is ordinary citizens who are taken to the streets. They're tired of business as usual in politics. Here's Hertean Van Aken again. The fact that we see a lot of people from different generations, people with children coming here, I guess this is also a strong message that uh, it's really regular people that that feel that they have the duty to, to actually to rebel against their governments. Anything else you want to add? We'll be back.
0: Thanks, Paula, And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. If you like the podcast, we encourage you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And you can find all of us on Twitter or write to us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Rima Muntaz in Paris. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.